Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my very special guest is Hans Ray. Hans is a mountain bike trials legend and global ambassador for the sport, exploring and documenting exotic locations around the world by bike. His nonprofit Wheels for Life provides bicycles for transportation to folks in developing countries. He was inducted in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 1999, and he's an IMBA honorary board member. Thanks for joining us, Hans. Jeff, you got that intro wired, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stoked, stoked to be talking to you today. Yeah, well, it's an honor. So what was the spark that got you so interested in riding bicycles early on? Well, the spark for me was really motorcycles. We had a motorcycle trials club in my hometown in Germany where I grew up. And me and my mates thought, man, that would be cool to do that. And I guess our parents <laughs> thought we were a little bit young or maybe it was dangerous or expensive. So we started imitating the trials motorcycles on the, on our bicycles, like, you know, just converted our regular bikes we had and stingrays and stuff like that. And started hopping around and before we knew it we had 50 kids in our hometown that were doing it and oh, wow. we didn't invent the sport by any means there was other groups and places in europe that already practiced trials mm -hmm. but we were kind of early on there and when it kind of got organized and they started to have championships on a regional and a national and later international level and never switched over to motos and eventually when I kind of was like 18, 19, I figured, you know, I still hadn't switched and I figured it was time actually to retire and get a real with life and serious with life and I had this invitation from this American trials rider who told me he used to always come to Europe and compete with us because trials was bigger in Europe. Mm -hmm. And one year he said, Hans, there's a new sport in America. It's called mountain biking. <laughs> and they always have trials as one of the disciplines. Plus, they're doing it on 26-inch bikes, not just on 20-inch bikes. And you should come to America and show them what real mountain biking is. And I figured, well, that would be a great way to end my career and go to university <laughs> to visit America once. And yeah. Uh, little did I know my career hadn't even started really at that point, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, that's a really cool story. I mean, you're credited with being one of the earliest mountain bike trials riders. I mean, it sounds like you're at the right place at the right time. But it seems like riding trials on a mountain bike would be harder than it is on a dedicated trials bike. You know, you mentioned the bigger wheel size. So was that a hard transition for you? Well, first I, I started doing it on a 20-inch bike. Even here in America, they had a, the modified class. That's where that, that word modified and stock bike trials. In the stock was a regular mountain bike. Mm -hmm. And yes, people looked at it like kids' bikes, the 20-inch bikes, or they looked at it as a specialty bike, you know, with a bash guard and all that stuff and a really small chain ring. And once I started doing the same moves on a regular mountain bike, the people could relate better to it and they would even appreciated more and respected more and so yes that helped and it was initially certain moves were definitely harder on the mountain bike and other moves were maybe easier and um, with the bikes evolved the, the riding technique you know i mean in the early days we would 
pedal the bikes and then later you started hopping and then you started hopping just on one wheel and you know all these new riding techniques developed you know and the bikes changed you know you drop the seats and you never sit down and you <laughs> but yeah uh, doing it on the mountain bike was for me personally a big breakthrough people you know, everybody knew how hard it was just to bunny hop up a curb on a mountain bike. Right. So if they see a guy jump up the side of a car straight to the roof, <laughs> you know, they were like, they were, I think they, they could relate to it and it impressed them. Yeah. Well, it seems like that was really good marketing as well. I mean, I guess that was a big part of why the sport had so much interest, you know, from the industry and from consumers alike. I mean, you were showing like what these bikes were capable of and, and making them look cool, I guess, too. Yeah, that was all part of it. And I mean, as a trials guy, what we always did besides the competitions, we did trials shows and they were they were popular with the spectators and at events, you know, and back in Germany, it could be at a car dealership or at a <laughs> town festival or whatever occasion, you know, we would like demonstrate some skills and people can watch it and relate to it and that translated later with trials competitions back in the days of mount in the late 80s you know when i first came to america I was 87 and at that point the mountain bike boom hadn't really started yet mm-hmm. you know they, they had been there were these competitions and they and in the old days you had a stage race and a stage race was a, a mountain bike race where you had to do cross country trials and downhill on the same bike oh wow and so trials was a big part and the trials competition was always a spectator event because in a cross-country race you know the guys would disappear in the woods and then they come back eventually but in a in a trials competition it was like on the lawn like in mammoth mountain they had a huge trials every year and thousands of people would come and watch us and it was a big spectacle and and yes in those days everybody would do the trials competition you know from annette overhand to uh, john tomek they they all had to do it. And then eventually a group of us kind of specialized and kind of took the sport to a whole new level. And then also the sport started to specialize in general and guys would have a different bike for downhill than they would have for cross country. And mm-hmm. certain guys would specialize in a certain discipline. And that's how our sport kind of split up into different subcategories. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the trial skills, you know, they were... They were great skills to demonstrate something. And that's where you mentioned marketing. I mean, initially, you know, like I I could be a guest on a TV show, you know, and actually show some tricks and jump over a person or jump off a wall and do something that people could look at. You know, if they would have invited some cross country racer to a TV studio, he, he couldn't really showcase his skills, you know, so it worked from that point of view well. Yeah. Well, speaking of these sort of different disciplines that we all have now in mountain biking, how that all split up, how's mountain bike trials riding related to free riding? Is there some crossover? Did did free riding sort of grow out of that? Well, arguably, yes, it did really because... I mean, the evolution of free ride, you know, it goes way beyond, way before the, the when the, the free ride boom exploded in BC. You know, that's when it got big. But before that, I mean, I used to call it extreme mountain biking. Yeah. And, you know, like, because I, I was looking at the extreme skiers in the early 90s, the guys who would jump off cliffs and stuff like the Glenn Blakes and the the Scott Schmitz of this world. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is cool. I don't I don't want to be a mountain bike racer anymore. I want to be an extreme mountain biker. So we, and that's when I started my first videos that really 
you know, my, my, those videos we started doing in 91, 92. And then after that, they were the biggest game changer for me. And that was like way before the internet way, you know, and basically what YouTube was for Danny McCaskill was VHS for me. Right. And we, we did these trials videos, which merged over into like, yeah, extreme mountain biking. We would ride the steepest trails we could find and, and do crazy stuff and show <laughs> some personality and lifestyle. Right. But yeah, so there was definitely trials routes there. And I happened when I first came to America in 87, I, w I happened to immediately got introduced to the Laguna Rats. And the Laguna Rats is one of the oldest mountain bike clubs in the world. Right. As a matter of fact, they're in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame as a club. And what I always, the rats not only made me a real mountain biker, you know, they had a, a Wednesday night ride every Wednesday. And actually to this day, you know, I'm going to go tonight. Oh, cool. And every Wednesday they had a, you know, they started five years before I came to the States. So it's really an old club with old traditions. But those were core mountain bikers. And because in that, in the late 80s, as I told you earlier, when they had those stock bike or, yeah, these, these stage races, mm -hmm. all of mountain biking started going towards racing. And they made mountain biking out. It was all about racing. And the original spirit from the clunker guys, like, you know, that was really a free ride spirit that kind of got lost. And the rats was a club that kept that alive. Those guys would wear t-shirts and they would like go bush hike and biking and <laughs> ride the steepest trails and drink beers and keep that spirit alive, have campfires afterwards. So anyway, so that's that. And all of those guys were trials guys or a lot of them were trials guys and they all would practice their trial skills, you know, and see who can ride down the steepest trails, but also compete in trials and, so yeah, trials is definitely uh, rooted into into the original the free ride and and just one last thing to this subject is I mean look at how the North Shore started that was very trials based the old school North Shore when when they had um, when they had these skinnies and and all that stuff and teeter totters and stuff was very trials like yeah that's that's really great to hear that like historical perspective of like how all this stuff developed and branched apart over the years. So you're actually, if my math is correct, you're 52 years old and still going strong, still making videos, traveling the world on your bike. How have you managed to ride so hard for so long? Yeah, I'm actually going to turn 54 in a, in a couple of months, but um, oh. yeah, you know what? I don't know, man. I don't know the answer to this. I mean, since I was 16 years old, I literally would say, you know, I'm going to do this a couple more years and then I'm going to retire. Mm -hmm. And I would have never thought that I would be able to do it professionally for so long. You know, when I when I first came to America and, and really I had all these opportunities and I was like, OK, well, maybe I postponed uh, university for another year or so and stay because at the time I, I already hooked up with GT Bicycles then and there. They've been my my loyal sponsor. Mm hmm since 1987 you know and and at the same time also swatch came on board and they wanted me to do trial shows all over the country at at different events and at shopping malls together with skateboarders like rodney mullen you know i would tour with or even rob roscoff you know when he was a skate pro we used to do demos together oh wow so i was like you know like okay i'm gonna stay for a year and then go back to school and and all that stuff it wasn't easy back then you know there, there wasn't really professional bike riders i mean we just started to have professional mountain bike racers but it was all about racing and it was really cross-country and downhill and there was maybe kevin norton was the only was the national trials champion he was probably the only other sponsored mountain biker you know until he brought me over and then 
from the trials background. But anyway, so and then once I started doing these antiques outside of racing and competing, you know, when I do trial shows, when I would be on TV shows, when I start doing these videos that would really spread all over the world, you know, in a way, you know, that the the team managers often didn't quite know what to do with me or what to you know or what to you know we don't have budget for that or you know i would get the shitty paycheck even though i would generate much more exposure and stuff but that's right it was at the beginning even in racing the even the downhillers were the underdogs because the team managers traditionally came from road riding and so they could relate to cross country the most mm-hmm. And downhill was next, and then like dual slalom, and then the trials guys down the ladder, and <laughs> and it's still a little bit like this, but that's how this culture was spread. But um, yeah, I would have I would have never thought that that I would be still able to do this professionally, you know, like literally um, thirty two years later after I started riding professionally. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for other people who are you know sort of looking to stay fit and active on the bike? through the years, you know, whether they're your age or they're younger, you know, kind of looking forward. I mean, what, what's been your secret to staying so, so fit and healthy? Well, you got to keep riding, you got to keep evolving, you got to keep accepting new trends and embrace them. And it doesn't get easier when you get older, trust me, you know, I, I can feel it in my bones and, and all that. And you, you know, if you take a break or if you get injured, it takes longer to recover. But you got to keep drawing wood in the fire, you know, not only on the physical side of things in terms of staying fit and in shape, but also mentally in terms of keep keep being motivated and also, you know, and keep you know, have, you know, have fun with it, you know, make it fun. And that's that was a big thing for me. But also at the end of the day, it was a business and you had to be also business savvy or keep, you know, keep drawing wood in the fire, basically find ways to you know nobody sponsors you out of goodwill you know it is a it is a business at the end of the day and i think that's what a lot of young kids who get sponsored be it for racing or free ride don't understand sometimes you know that for them it's still kind of a hobby and all of a sudden they get sponsored and then they sometimes forget that is it is a business at the end of the day and these sponsors want to get something out of and and i found always ways to make myself valuable or to give my sponsors if you want to use that word, a return of investment, you know, and Mm -hmm. in many different forms, you know, it could be in generating media exposure. I mean, traditionally, sponsoring was like you, you race, you win a race, the sponsors are stoked that you're the first place you get that means you get media exposure, you get attention, it's a testimonial for the bike and the brand. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. So but with other guys, we get also media impressions, and sometimes even much bigger than a racer would get. And we would also be a testimonial. I mean, when the first suspension forks came out and I started using them for trials and started doing front wheel hops, people didn't know what to think of suspension forks. You know, they were like, we don't need that for mountain biking. You know, everybody would ride rigid bikes. And then like, and then like, oh, are they even strong enough? And then when they would see a guy like me hopping on the front wheel, you know, this would be a, a testimonial for the product in, in ways or verify it. And so there was all these steps and evolution throughout the thing. But at the end, I think I did have always a business sense and I, I, I ended up to stay relevant and evolve and also often be on the forefront of new trends. You know, sometimes I would even start them and other times I would jump early onto a new trend or see its potential or value or at least give it a go. And that hasn't really changed to this day. 
Yeah, it also seems like you really enjoy what you're doing and you're sort of an adventurer at heart. So you've ridden a lot of amazing locations, challenging places all over the world too. Which trips or destinations stand out over the years? Oh yeah, there isn't so many. I mean, I've I've been like in way over seventy countries now, and um, oh wow! And eventually, after I competed, you know, for over ten years in the U.S. I mean, first I competed ten years in Europe in trials, and then I came to the U.S. and and competed and did trial shows. But I started around ninety five. I started do these adventure trips where I would go to these cool locations and travel, and eventually I would come uh, retire from competing altogether. But even that was a difficult transition. You know, like, again, those team managers not always understood that, well, if you're not racing anymore, what are we going to do with you? And <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do these adventures and they're going to be televised in documentary films and they're going to be in magazines, not just bike magazines, but in travel and lifestyle magazines. And it took another three or so years for them to see the results and all of a sudden go like, holy cow, this is really, you know, something. And yeah. and this was 20 years ago, I started with the Hans Ray Adventure team. And I mean, nowadays, the word adventure is a little bit, um, it's a bit, I'm laughing at it a bit, you know, everybody <laughs> uses the word and for little every little outing or photo shoot, and a lot of people have jumped onto the bandwagon. And it's, it's not that special anymore if you go right in the Andes or in the Himalayas or if you eat some bark in China. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I did that for 20 years. And I think one of my highlights was um, about three years ago when I did uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya, the two highest oh, right. mountains in Africa. I did them back to back. And I was already 50 years old. And I was, I think I'm the proudest of that because I think it was the hardest trip. Hmm. And also I, I came to the conclusion afterwards that to me, Kilimanjaro is the Everest for bikers. Uh -huh. Huh. Kilimanjaro is almost 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters. And I know people have been higher with bikes and they carried them way over 7,000 meters. But um, it usually doesn't make sense when you go higher than over 6,000 meters because it's all snow and ice and the people usually just carry the bikes up and down and they do it for the sake of of the Guinness Book of Records or so. Right. But Kili is a mountain that you still have to carry your bike up. They, the air is just too thin and the, the, the ground is too soft or it's too steep. Mm -hmm. But you can actually, we, we did ride the whole thing down. I did that trip with um, a German rider called uh, Gerhard Zerner and also with Danny McCaskill. Right. And our goal was we weren't the first to be on Kili. But we were the first to do Kili and Kenya back to back. And we were also the first to basically rode the whole thing down. Most people um, carry their bike on summit day up and down the crater there, the, the steepest part. So, yeah, that was a highlight for sure. Yeah, very cool. What's on your bucket list? Where are the places? I mean, you've been to 70 countries already. Are there still some countries you're hoping to hit with your bike someday? There's a few places on the radar that I haven't been to. But you know what What I really got inspired by lately is these urban adventures. After going to all the remote corners in the world, I've been lately doing these urban adventures. And it's basically, I pick these big cities in the world that also have really incredible, incredible nature left and right. And my first trip was basically a five-day traverse of Los Angeles. I did it right here in my hometown. I figured, why always travel 14 hours or you know somewhere you know like if i have such great stuff here in california and like if you are familiar with los angeles you know to the east you have the san gabriel mountains with mount wilson and they have incredible trails i mean there's waterfalls you could sink 
you know, you, you in Yosemite, you know, and then yeah. go around the corner and there's downtown LA. And then on the other side, you have the Santa Monica mountains with the backbone trail and all kinds of stuff. And, and in between you have this crazy urban jungle that has these not only famous landmarks, but it has also these remote neighborhoods and places. And often they also connected by trails or staircases and, <laughs> yeah. and it's such a fun way to explore these cities and you, you have that contrast you know on day one with nature and harmony and then you have this urban jungle with chaos and traffic and sometimes you come through a homeless shelter and or a camp and and then you go down another staircase and you pop out next to britney spears house or so and it's like right. it's a great way and the last stage we we traversed catalina island and we brought e-bikes into the mix so some of those stages especially the urban ones we did on e-bikes while the other stages we did on regular mountain bikes. And just recently I launched a film for my second trip that was in Napoli in Naples, Italy, that 3000 year old city. And we started at the Amalfi coast and went to the Vesuvio volcano and, and both those trips, uh, trans Napoli and trans Angeles are, are both on my YouTube channel as full on documentary films. Yeah. Those have been really fun to watch. I love how, you know, you're able to find new places to ride in these unexpected places. And like you said, you don't have to travel halfway around the world. I mean, a lot of these these spots are, are right where we live. Really, right where you are. And it's also a great way to meet the people and the culture and the places and the, the food. And, and there's so many things, you know, like in, in Naples, we, they, we got access to these underground tunnel systems that have been built thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. And they've been used for whatever, you know, to hide in the war or to as water uh, cisterns or, you know, where they would, where the old Romans would store the water supplies for the city or whatever, you know, like secret tunnels. And we got to ride under the, under there. And there's so many cool things in those cities. It's really, it's exciting. So that, that gets me ticking these days. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun to watch as well. So you mentioned that part of what's allowed you to remain relevant is to stay on top of trends and to always be innovating. So in 2008, you coined the term flow country trail to describe a trail that's basically, and I'm quoting you here, never steep, extreme or dangerous. And also you say that it's a trail that can be ridden by all skill levels and on any kind of mountain bike. So it's surprising to me and probably some of our listeners to think that the idea of purpose-built mountain bike flow trails was new back then. What did you see sort of in 2008 that led you to think that these types of trails would be popular with people? Well, there was already purpose-built trails around and there was flow trails around, but traditionally the flow trails were built by more like the core riders Mm -hmm. and they were not exactly beginner-friendly. You know, so you had to be quite a good rider to ride a Whistler bike park, you know, or. Right. And the trails were also built often, you know, like unsustainable and unpredictable. So, you know, like you might have a perfect little jump and a perfect berm, and then the next one is completely abrupt or wrong build. And mm-hmm. if you're a good rider, you can compensate. But if you're a beginner, you might get sent, you know. And. Yes, they had beginner trails also back in those days. So we didn't invent any of that. We just kind of, my idea was to define our language, our mountain biking language, because Mm -hmm. the Eskimos, they have 10 different words for the word snow, (laughs) you know, depending on its consistency. And for us mountain bikers, a trail is a trail and fun is fun and flow is flow. (laughs) 
And you never really know what somebody means when they say that. Right. And flow is a big family of, there's all kinds of flow trails. And a flow country trail is just a certain kind of flow trail that is never steep, never extreme, and never dangerous. So some people would have told you even then, like 12 years ago, when, when I coined that term, that, well, we have that already. Uh, we have to begin, it's our beginner line or the easy line. And it's like, mm -hmm. but back then, the easy lines were often really not built well. So, and they were really, would be super boring for a good rider. Mm -hmm. But my argument was, if you build a beginner trail really well, a top guy like a Steve Pete or whoever would have just as much fun as a first-time rider. Steve Pete might just go twice the speed or double some things up. <laughs> right. But um, the thing is, if, if a trail is built right, you feel like you're on rails and it's like a symphony and it's like unfolding and you get this feeling of weightless and you float through the trail, you know, and you flow. And that's art, you know, not, you know, there's a lot, there's a big difference between, you know, in the old days, and, and some people still think that today is like, they they think like, oh, anybody can build a trail, hand out some shovels and let's go. <laughs> but the, the really great trail builders in this world are masters, you know, like a Beethoven or so, and they build stuff really perfect and good. And, and like I said, sustainable, predictable, and really creative. And um, so that's something that was, that what that's the aspect really we only brought there but but especially from a tourism point of view in europe you know a lot of the tourism the, the ski resorts they they went into mountain biking and then they have this pro come in and they build a trail and he's like oh that's really easy it's it's only a 18 foot jump you know usually i would say <laughs> a 30 foot jump you know so anybody can do that and it's like and then you know, it wouldn't work, you know, like the ski resorts make their money with the blue runs and skiing and, it, and mountain biking the same. And, and if you build those trail rides and, you know, it has proven uh, correct, you know, this whole, the word flow country might not, didn't become global, but the, the flow country trail concept of having these trails and building a trail that's never steep, never extreme and never dangerous and making it right um, has grown. And, and all the places, including Whistler, they have paid much more attention towards beginner-friendly trails in the last 10 years than they have towards hardcore trails because they need it and they also need to build it right. I mean, if you ask anybody at Whistler what they could do different, one of the things they would tell you, we would build every trail 2% less steep hmm. because they not only become more beginner-friendly, but they become more sustainable. The trails would never be so... They wouldn't get worked as hard at the end of the summer, you know, if they, you know, if they wouldn't have so many breaks. And mm -hmm. so those are all things people had to learn. And, and that's something, you know, like I, I work really close with this uh, Didi Schneider. He's a German trail builder. He's, in my opinion, one of the top three guys in the world. When, you know, we always talked about that kind of stuff. I mean, I told him one day about this flow country idea. He said, this is exactly what we need. You know, everybody wants a trail like this, but mm -hmm. people didn't even know what to call it or how to describe it. They just wanted to, you know, have a fun trail. But right. And at the beginning, you know, it was just too dangerous. You know, there would be doubles and people didn't know how to jump and what people would show up and try to ride a hardcore A-line on a hardtail with a with the seat up and yes you can ride it with a hardtail but if you're a cross-country guy who's never jumped and you an a-line is actually a bad example because a-line has tabletops but other trails don't have tabletops and you have mm -hmm. you have to clear the backside and most people you know they you know 
that's something you don't just do you know you have to kind of get eased into so well yeah i mean it must be it must feel good and and be validating to see sort of i mean it seems like most new trail projects these days at least incorporate some of this idea of like flow country and and building trails that are never too steep or extreme or dangerous i mean what's the what's the future of flow trails or more generally purpose-built bike trails Is, is there still room to improve on the concept or to expand it out yeah there is i think in general the the next kind of decade of mountain biking, you know, the last three decades were predominantly uh, dominated by the bikes we rode and the material and the technology of the bikes. Mm-hmm. And in the last 10, 12 years, 15 years, trails became more important. But I think the next 10 years, it will be all about where we ride. There will be so many cool places or trails going to be created Hmm. you know and all kinds of trails i don't say every trail in the world should be a flow country trail or even a flow trail you know i mean old school trails and have just have their place just as much as any other Mm -hmm. but there will be these destinations that will pop up with just quality trails and cool stuff and i mean look at even already here in the u.s now what what has happened in bentonville or in in bellingham up in washington i was just there last weekend it's amazing the amount of trails they have and the quality and to the point where it's not only a place you want to go and ride, you want to actually move there and live in a place like this, you know? Yeah. And all this has really started back in the early 90s in, in Wales when they started building uh, these trail centers there. There was one particular guy, David Davis, his name is, and he started building these trail centers, which everybody else basically models their stuff after, you know, and... Those were trail centers without lift access, you know. They were just like really cool cross-country trails and um, and you have to pedal up and then you have a fun flowy downhill. And, and he did not only start building these purpose-built trails and is the father of it all. And this was way before even Whistler started building a bike park, just to put it into perspective. But mm-hmm. the one thing he did really right was he measured the impact of what these trails would have on the local community and the people. Right. And I mean, anybody who's ever tried to get a a trail project approved in their local town to the city or whatever, you know, if you talk to politicians and you have numbers in your back pocket, you know, you're already halfway there. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. You know, he could tell people, look, we had 15,000 visitors in this region, you know, like three years ago. Now we have 150,000, 85% are mountain bikers. 80% 80% of those 85% spend the night here and right. come from more than six hours away and and on and on and on. And, and that's what David Davis really did. And um, I think he's actually going to be nominated to the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame this year. And uh, I'm sure he will get in and nobody deserves it more. Yeah, that's really cool because we definitely hear that a lot more about the economic impact of mountain biking. And yeah, it seems like communities all over the world are embracing that and finally believing in it but yeah it took getting that data and and sharing it out to make it happen no it's amazing i mean beyond comprehension i mean there's literally projects happening left and right i mean somebody just told me the other day hey they 
we are going to do a 14 million euro trail project in our area and we need some you know like we need some advice you know how to go about it but i mean stuff like this it's like imagine if you would have heard that like (laughs) 20 years ago you know you're you're lucky if you had 500 dollars for to build a trail you know and then you do it by hand and do it all by yourself or with your friends well yeah it's it's cool to talk about how trails have evolved and to see how that's changed over the years what's it been like to see the evolution of mountain bikes over that same time period well it's been a journey i tell you Um, (laughs) and sometimes I, i look at these old bikes and i mean i still ride some of the trails i ride especially here in laguna beach where i live in california some of the trails the, the trails are generally quite steep but some of those trails we've ridden already 35 years ago right and we still ride them today and they still challenging they even we still consider them steep trails mm-hmm. and and sometimes you go like how the heck did we ride these things without suspension <laughs> with little 2.0 tires with like uh with crappy little cantilever brakes you know and all that stuff you know little narrow handlebars i mean the sport has come a long way you know from suspension first with the forks then with full suspension bikes disc brakes now i mean we have electronic shifting and (laughs) hydraulic brakes well what do you think what do you think the result of all that is i mean is it bringing more people into the sport like making it more accessible and easier for people to try it and enjoy it or is it is it allowing us to go faster i mean what what's kind of the upshot i mean if we're riding the same trails we're always riding yeah what, what do you think we've gained i think it's safer and it's more fun I mean, the thing is, if you don't know any better, then you you make do with what you got, you know, and that's how it was. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, honestly, if you would give me even a modern day hardtail and said, this is the only bike you can have, <laughs> I think I would quit mountain biking. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Where I live, especially here with this, the, the steep trails and stuff. Yeah. So not even to mention like a 1989 uh, hardtail. I'm talking about a 2008 hardtail. I'm just like, you know, bikes have come so long, uh, such a long way. And they and I, I just know it can be better and more fun, you know. Right. But if I wouldn't know that there's full suspension bikes and disc brakes and electronic shifting and all this nice posh stuff with dropper seat posts and stuff, I would probably still ride that 89 hardtail. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, you mentioned uh, using e-bikes on at least one of your projects. How do you think e-bikes fit into mountain bike culture? I mean, some people feel like it's it's more on the moto side. Some people feel like it's more mountain biking. I mean, what's what's sort of your take? For me, they clearly bicycles, but I, I talk only class one e-bikes. Everything faster is, I would put into a different category. Mm-hmm. And I think the big confusion is in, in Europe, when you talk e-bikes, everybody thinks and talks class one. In America, everybody thinks these throttles and big, powerful things. Right. And there's this, it's a different perception. And I think that's the biggest difference between why here in America you have so much um, opponents but everybody, even the biggest critics I've met, and I literally talking about ninety nine point nine percent, if they actually ride an e bike, mm-hmm. most of the opponents have never even ridden one. But once they ride it, they have to admit it's pretty fun. And once you've ridden one of those class one e bikes, pedal assist, I'm talking about, no throttle, then you kind of realize, you know, it is really like a bicycle, and you still have a bicycle mentality you wear bicycle clothes you have a bicycle helmet you don't have a full face motorcycle helmet you don't have 
full protectors. Right. And you still want to ride those same trails that you've ridden the last 20 years on your mountain bike. And now you might get a little bit older or you want, you're not as fit anymore or you want to ride with people of different skill levels. And, mm-hmm. and yes, I see all the pro and the contra. You know, I see the potential conflicts. I see, yes, there's going to be more trail users, more, you know, there's there could be people now in the hills that, don't really know the etiquette of mountain biking or nature in general. And it might be pretty easy to pedal up a, a fire road on an e-bike. And then the same person might be out of control going down. And I see all that stuff. But I think people need to be educated. We have more trails. I think the bike shops have to do a, a good job of educating people and also telling them, hey, don't ride on illegal trails. Give other trail users the right of way. Be polite and don't ship your e-bike because right now uh, from a legislation point of view these class one bikes are kind of considered bicycles mm-hmm. and but if people like change the chips and make them faster you know so they don't have a speed limit anymore or do this to them oh right then eventually the insurance companies will go and go like hey guys you guys need to start paying into the pot here you know you need to have a driver's license for this thing you need to have insurance and then it will definitely be classified a motorcycle and then it will be over. Right. But right right now, these things are the class one e-bikes are considered uh, bicycles, and we all have to do our part. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with banning them on certain trails. I don't think they should ban them everywhere. And maybe with you know, even with mountain biking, we have more and more people using the hills, and even more and more hikers. I feel like are out in the hills than before. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Maybe there will have to be more one-way trails and stuff like that you know to find solutions you know yeah it's an interesting issue it's definitely like everything else in the mountain bike world things change and we need to adapt and find new solutions so it's interesting to get your perspective on that so as one of the first riders to produce extreme mountain bike videos what's your take on youtube as like video production i mean obviously has changed a lot over the years and distribution as well what what do you think about youtube and online videos well it's it's awesome you know and it's amazing what can be done you know with with nowadays not only from a from a camera point of view Mm -hmm. i mean you can literally now with your iphone shoot a better film than we could do with the best camera crew like 20 years ago you know what i mean yeah and with tv tv quality cameras though youtube is an incredible platform for you know to show these films honestly there's so much now it's it seems like it's not that special anymore and you and you kind of get a little bit numb towards it you know because there's so much quality stuff out there even from a little kid around the corner you know (laughs) who can edit it and make it look good or and does incredible stuff on a bike you know for me back then you know like when we started with those vhs tapes there was nothing else out there there was there was hardly any mountain biking on tv it was way before the internet it was before the first ever X Games, you know. It was the only, there was a few videotapes out there of cross country racing, you know. And watching cross country racing back then, it was like watching grass grow. <laughs> and when we started doing some fun videos and kind of took away the, the stopwatches and the hard training and more like had an attitude and lifestyle and and these videos got really, really popular and they really spread like wildfire, you know, in all over the world. And people would literally wear out the VHS tapes, you know. 
Right. And it's, it, I'm amazed to this day how many people like, rem, like grew up on those things, you know, and, and remember stupid little one-liners or little sentences or stuff <laughs> I've done or said. And I had the stage for myself, you know, which was great. Nowadays, even a Danny McCaskill has shared a stage with millions of people. Right. You know, and, and Danny, yes, he, he had kind of a huge breakthrough. He was the first big biker who had success on YouTube some 10 years ago. And but the, the the playing field has changed now, and a young kid, who even if if a kid is like way more skilled than Danny, he, he in some ways he has it harder to to make a name for themselves, you know, nowadays because right. there's so much content out there. Do you think that'll push people to do maybe more dangerous things, or or will it just maybe force people to be more creative or? Oh, both, both. You always have the, yes, there will be a percentage. I mean, look at how many millions of people upload bike videos. There will be a percentage of people who try to set themselves apart by doing something stupid <laughs> or doing something, you know, I mean, look at all, every website has now the, the fail of the day. You know, back in the days, you were lucky if you had like two good crashes you captured, you know, that you could use, you know, in a film. Now, like everybody and their brother has so many crashes and yeah. people go out and they ride over their head or they don't know, you know, they see it on a video and they just go for it or they ride a chump that's just built wrong and then they crash because of that, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, so yeah, and some people get creative. I mean, look at the evolution of free ride at, at one point. Once the word free ride got introduced to mountain biking, you know, you know, like I said earlier, we called it extreme mountain biking. And then in 96, when the BC scene kind of got big, they adopted the word free ride from from really from snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And they started calling it free ride. And at the same time, um, full suspension bikes actually matured enough that we started having having like six, seven inch bikes, you know, that people could ride and could all of a sudden do much more steeper stuff. And in those early days, in the in the 90s, when Josh Bender was around, it was all about these big drops. But it got to the point where, you know, guys would jump 50 foot drops. And it was like, even those guys, you know, as, as cool as it looked on the videos, they were like, I don't want to do that every day or every week. Yeah. Just, you know, and, but people start to expect that. And I mean, remember Josh Bender worked on a hundred foot drop. He never done it, mm -hmm. but that was kind of his goal, I think at the time and on those relatively crappy bikes 20 years ago. And then all of a sudden people were like, you know what? No, let's go half the height, but start throwing tricks. <laughs> right. People did like maybe instead of a 30 foot drop, they did a 10 foot drop, but started doing a no hander or a, 360 mm -hmm. and that's how kind of really slope style you know kind of evolved and it became a bit more of a trick thing which in some people's opinion i mean if i watch a slope style contest today it it's amazing but it's more like it has more to do with bmx and gymnastics than it has with mountain biking in my opinion you know so i'm a bit more of a fan of the traditional big mountain stuff like a rampage or so where it's a bit more mm -hmm. yeah big mountain riding so but but there's something for everybody, and and I think, yes, um, it will evolve into every single direction, and then often it will probably spin back again to the origins. I mean, look at even, I mean, if you followed what Rat Boy has been doing and those those guys with his 50 to 1 gang, you know, and when they were like, because everybody had such posh productions, and, and guys would literally, even in the bike industry, there would be people who would spend two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars on one little YouTube clip to produce it, Ooh. and with with film crews and with everything, and 
And then all of a sudden, some people were like, let's just go out in the woods and we film ourselves. We don't need a camera. And we have fun and we show each other trying and crashing. And that's what those guys started doing. But that's that's what we basically did 30 years ago. You know, it was all like that. You know, it was like just having fun and yeah. and riding. So often people evolve back to the, the roots. And I'm sure that will happen um, with other little trends or or things we had in our sport going over the last 30 years. They all flare up again at one point or another and and evolve. Yeah, that's a really good perspective. So tell us a little bit about your nonprofit Wheels for Life. What motivated you to give back to the sport and to, well, really to people around the world in this way? Well, the sport has been so damn good to me that I thought I need to give something back. <laughs> no, I mean, it kind of was this way. I, I started Wheels for Life together with my wife, Carmen, and we started it about, I think we're in our 12th year now. And Wheels for Life is a non-profit. We give bicycles to people in need of transportation in developing countries. So often we give bikes away in Africa, but also in Asia and South America, in places where poor people are and live and have no mobility. You know, so either they, they cannot, they don't have a bicycle or a car or any of that, or they don't even have access to one or there's no public transportation. And mobility is key because kids often have to walk five or ten kilometers to school. Doctors and healthcare workers use bikes to visit patients and to farmers. You know, often if you go to rural Africa, there's no jobs, you know, that people can go and apply to. You either you have to be a farmer and be self-sufficient and you have to be find a way to get your goods to the market. Mm-hmm. And if that market is 10, 20 miles away, you better have at least a bicycle, you know. Right. And these people can pack like hundreds of pounds on a bicycle, you know, so it's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all seen the photos. And anyway, and I traveling around the world in the last 30 years and going to these remote places and countries, I, I realized that bicycle has a very different meaning for these people, you know, than for me or us. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the Western world, the bike is mostly a sports object or a toy. Yes. Some people also use it for transportation, but generally speaking, it's a toy. And mm-hmm. for those people, it can be existential and can really make the difference between having a job or having education or health care or whatever. So, yeah, so that's got us started. And I, I thought I would, you know, I wanted to give something back to the sport. And I started out with, you know, I made a promise in some, I did some course. And in that course, they asked to do a, a community project. And usually people would organize some neighborhood or family event where they get everybody together. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to donate 50 bikes to a place where I visited in the past. And I had no idea what even a 501c3 charity was. <laughs> right. I had no idea how I would get these bikes there or how I would do it. I, you know, and, and, I, and as more as I looked into it, as more as I realized it's not going to stop with these 50 bikes. Mm-hmm. To date, we've given away over 12,000 bikes in 33 different countries. And the thing I think we're the most proud of is the fact that we are a very pure charity. Like nobody gets paid in our organization. It's basically my my wife and I who do all the day-to-day work. And we do have volunteers who help us. We do have a board of directors, obviously, that kind of supervises the whole thing. But even when I travel to one of the projects, you know, I I pay my travel expenses out of my own pocket, you know. It's really, oh, that's cool. So we are pure in that sense, and that's kind of a neat thing. So, I mean, at the end of the day, 
12,000 bikes is, you know, is, is still a, a drop in the bucket, you know, considering that there's millions of people who could benefit from a bike. But, you know, like we, we're doing our part and there's other organizations who do similar work. And um, if nothing else, you know, hopefully we also inspire people to give back in their own ways. You know, if they don't support our way, you know, people get inspired by doing something else where they give back. And I think most of us or everybody in the Western world has it very good compared to the majority of uh, billions of people in the world who have it who have it much tougher than we do. So. Yeah, that's really cool uh, how you're able to recognize that need and then to use, you know, bicycling, something that you're very passionate about and something that um, you've lived for your life and, and using that to help other people. So that's really, really cool. Thanks. So finally, we talked a little bit about uh, your current video projects, uh, riding in urban locations around the world. What other videos or adventures do you have in the works right now? I'm going to continue with these urban adventures. And like I mentioned earlier, the Transnapoli film was just launched and it's currently we distributed it. All over, you know, people often ask, how, how come Hunt Ray still sponsored? He's, he's bloody over 50, you know, and, and, and one of the reasons, I mean, we talked about some of this stuff already is I do generate media exposure. And just to give you an example, this Trans Angeles, for example, the Trans Angeles adventure was published in over 25 magazines worldwide. Oh, wow. And, and not just with like one photo and a mention, like with like an average of eight to 10 pages, you know. Oh, wow. And then we made a half hour tv show out of it and that got distributed to over 80 countries it was broadcasted over 3000 times oh wow cool you know so so and then we we put it of course also on youtube and i have my own youtube channel but we also pushed it in social media and and these things generate a lot of media exposure you know and that's what we've been doing with the Transnapoli trip. It's currently distributed in t on TV. It will, it will be on, on I, I just heard yesterday, like an Italian airline picked it up for their in-flight entertainment. It, cool. it shows up at the most random places, you know, but, and, and some, some of it, it might, you might see it on a TV show in Africa, but you also see it on some mainstream, good, big channels and, mm -hmm. and you see it on, on OTT platforms and stuff like this. And, and the next trip I'm planning is going to be Hong Kong. So I'm in the planning of that right now. So that will be my, my next one. Yeah, very cool. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're truly a global ambassador for the sport and introducing people who maybe aren't familiar with mountain biking to the sport, which is really cool. And there aren't a lot of people out there doing that. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And, you know, happy trails next time we get a ride in or something. Yes, thank you. So you can keep up with Hans online at HansRay.com and also his YouTube channel. And you can also find out more about his nonprofit, Wheels for Life Online. So I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.